So, Asha, now that the main secretary of state determined that Donald Trump should not be on the ballot in that state, is it getting harder and harder for the U.S. Supreme Court to stay out of this dispute? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, another state bites the dust. (laughs) Indeed. And this is great. I'm so, I'm actually thrilled by the news because it gives us a chance to talk about this topic. I was sitting in the beach in St. Lucia listening to you and Steve talk about this. It was a fascinating conversation. It's not going to surprise you to learn that I maybe have a different perspective on it than Steve. Yeah, we'll tell. We'll get to that. Um, we had a great conversation. He was a perfect guest to have on um, to kind of break down all of that. Um, but why don't like I? I want to come back to that. I do want to get your take on uh, Steve and and frankly, um, after I had some more time. I mean, I pushed back a little bit on his take, but having had more time to reflect, I I want to I want to push back even more. So, um, but let's talk first about. What happened in Maine? Sure. So what happened in Maine? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the procedure in Maine is a little different than it is in other states. And the the starting point has to be a determination by the Maine Secretary of State regarding Donald Trump's eligibility. I believe this was once again for the primary ballot in in Maine. Am I right about that, Asha? Yes. And so she determined that um, and I think wrote a very lengthy, uh, well-reasoned, uh, you know, her, uh, I would say opinion. It's not a formal judicial opinion, but she's essentially saying, here's my determination. Um, and now ultimately this is going to be challenged in the main courts, but it's different because the starting point is her determination. And really it's, I, I would think more of it, um, an issue of whether or not her determination was appropriate Versus in Colorado, where there was essentially a like a state court trial, yeah, um, that made its way all the way up to the uh, Colorado Supreme Court. Yeah. So I th- what I think is interesting here, so her opinion is coming out of an administrative hearing that took place. Um, I, I assume with her sort of presiding over it, where there were three sets of plaintiffs, I believe, who challenged Trump's eligibility. Um, And I think the challenges were based not only on uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. There was one challenge, which I just thought was hilarious, which is uh, one of the people uh, making a challenge said he's ineligible to be on the primary ballot because he claims that he won um, and he's not eligible under the 22nd Amendment to to run again. And she, you know, basically like she threw that one out like um, she's like, well, he didn't win. And the fact that he's making these political claims that, but I just thought it was funny that somebody tried to use his, you know, hoist him by his own petard as it, as it were. Um, but yeah, so her, the procedural posture, it sounds like what, what she says is main law vests the authority in me to determine whether someone's eligible eligible to be on the ballot. And that's why, you know, this administrative hearing took place 
in front of her and then she writes his opinion. And I think that that's like a really important point to underscore. Um, I saw a clip with uh, Ellie Honig on CNN and he you know, was making this argument that, you know, she's not democratically elected. She's a, chosen by the state legislature. And, you know, this and somehow that made it invalid. But I think that that's an inaccurate argument. Like sh- the laws of the state give her this authority and the laws are made by people who are democratically elected. Like if you have a problem with it, like go and change the law. But to me, this is quintessentially how the state has decided to make these determinations. And I don't see how or why that's any less democratically legitimate than what Colorado has decided to do or any other state has decided to do. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they're, they're, that argument makes any sense, <laughs> to be candid with you. Uh, not the f- first time I've disagreed with Ellie on something. I, I think that um, she's doing her job realistically under Maine law. It doesn't sound like she she had any choice but to make a decision one way or the other. And so I don't see how that's valid or not. It's ultimately like anything about that, you know, any the, the validity of her decision doesn't turn on the fact that she's making it because she's doing what she's required to do under law. Right. The fact that this particular, like the merits of the decision is debated or controversial, you know, like if she points out, like if I were, if, if a teenager wanted to be on the ballot, I would be the one making the determination that the teenager could not be on the ballot because they're not eligible to be president. And so, you know, the fact that no one would argue with that, but people are arguing about this, as you said, doesn't change the fact that it's still her call under the law of Maine. Yeah, I think that's right. And and ultimately, um, I don't think that her decision is necessarily more or less valid because she's not a judge or she was democratically elected one way or the other. Um, but I, I do think it may have a difference. And one thing I don't know under Maine law is what deference is given to her determination. It may, in terms of just purely legally, uh, there may be a different level of deference. And, and I'll, if, like I said, I confess I'm not a Maine lawyer, but it, I think there's going to be potentially a different level of deference given to her determinations as an initial matter versus a trial court determination of the facts. Cause I think one thing that may have had an impact in the Colorado case is some factual findings by the trial judge um, that ultimately carried forward up to the uh, Supreme court. Yeah. What's interesting is that she drew from the Colorado ruling to support her own uh, determination, but yeah, I think that's the key of, of what makes this really hard all around. And I talked about this when I, um, was on ABC last week, is that unlike the case of a teenager or unlike the case of a Frenchman who decides to run for president, um, there's no objectively verifiable way, you know, to to determine eligibility. Like it's it with age or place of birth, it's objective, there's documentation, it's it is either it is or it isn't, you know, and this one requires that fact finding uh, determination um, in a much more robust way than than other eligibility requirements. And I think that's the difficult piece is how do you who makes that fact finding determination? Um, is there a specific procedure you need to get there? Like, does it have to be, as you mentioned, a trial? Can it be an adversarial hearing? Um, and I think at the end of the day, 
it's just going to be, I mean, we, we all know this is going to land in front of the Supreme Court. So, Well, that's right. And I think in addition to the challenges of making that factual determination, there's all sorts of first of its kind legal determinations that the Supreme Court's going to make. And, and you and Steve walked through that last week, some of which will potentially provide outs for the United States Supreme Court to come out one way or the other. One other point that I would make, I thought that was really valuable that you pointed out, Asha, as you mentioned, how the how the, the Secretary of State in Maine was influenced by mm-hmm. the Colorado decision. One thing I will just say from my experience in legal practice, one, one lesson I learned when I was a young lawyer in my, I think it was my late 20s, was the importance of how, how the ordering of decisions. So for example, when we would have, we had, for example, a very large client being sued in all 50 states. And part of my job was to figure out which states were good for us in terms of state law, which ones were bad. And they, the the partners on those cases at the time, you know, I was an associate, were like pushing forward the, the cases that were favorable, slowing down the ones that were unfavorable so that you had an ordering and, and it worked. There was ultimately these, when you had several decisions come down one way, it definitely influenced the the, the courts in other states because like, well, seven courts have already looked at this issue right? and they've determined, you know, X and it made it much harder for those courts to buck a trend. Strength in numbers, I guess. I mean, that's why I called the Colorado decision brave, because being the first, being the one to go there, as it were, um, is, I think, a big deal, right? And, you know, you're taking, I, I think they did have the correct decision, but they were really willing to address the hard question directly. In doing so, I think they have made it easier for other people, other states to to go there. Um so let's talk about the Supreme Court. I mean, unless there's more that you want to talk about with Maine, no. but I, I think that I'm interested in your reaction to my conversation with Steve because we haven't talked yet. So I'm no, we have not. Uh, I I was in the Caribbean uh, until right before Christmas. I got in the late on the 23rd, and then I've been enjoying time with my family. Um, I saw some of the comments like, oh, you know, know, that I'm always on vacation. Actually, it's the opposite. I'm not on vacation much. So this was a nice, uh, nice break. But in all seriousness, um, I was I thought it was a great conversation. Steve, like you said, was a perfect person for this topic. No one thinks about the Supreme Court, particularly the I would say I wouldn't say the modern, but the the current Supreme Court and how it operates and how it's changed things since then, Steve. But his take was uh, very surprising to me um, and odd uh, from my perspective. So I guess I the way I look at it is in two different uh, – I, I would split it in two different ways in terms of how I look at the issue. In terms of what – when I'm looking at the issue just purely on – I'll call it a balls and strikes uh, way. In other words, you know, that I'm using the analogy that Chief Justice Roberts used in his confirmation hearing when you're just – this is a new question. There's no legal precedent. No one's ever looked at it. So if I'm just looking at who has the better of the argument, I think the Colorado Supreme Court has the better of the argument, particularly when you look at the legislative history of what the framers of the 14th Amendment were trying to do with that amendment. They were concerned about it being for all time. They wanted it to cover future insurrections. They did toss out somebody without any determination during that time, right around that time period. So there's a lot of good clues that suggest that they, they, I think they, they would have agreed with the Colorado Supreme Court, the framers of the 14th Amendment. However, uh, you know, when I'm, let's say if I'm talking on television, people ask me, well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, that's a separate issue. 
where I'm like, what is the Supreme Court going to do? Well, look, the Colorado Supreme Court were all appointed by a Democrat. Seven, seven Democratic appointees went four to three th- that direction. Do I think this Supreme Court with three Trump appointees, a 6-3 right-wing majority, is going to – uh, affirm the ruling in the Colorado Supreme Court? No, but that's not because I think that's the way they should be <laughs> or that I'm not going to like inc- say that that's the right thing for America. I don't think that's the right calculus. Um, and I don't think that's how judges should be thinking about it. But I can predict to you that they will find a way, whether it's a political question or something else, to arrive at a decision that punts this to the election and to the public. Yeah, I think Steve's argument was – not only that they're not going to, but that they shouldn't right. disqualify Trump. And his reasoning was that they shouldn't do it because that decision won't be accepted. And it will be worse for the court for to, to have their decision, whatever, ignored or disregarded. And I think, like, what, after reflecting on it further, I'm like, what he's saying is, because let's look at who would be disregarding that opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, if it goes the other way and they don't disqualify Trump, half the country is going to be upset, too. But nobody's claiming that that, that decision would be disgu- disregarded. Only the decision to disqualify Trump would be disregarded. And the, the, the implication is that there will be violence and um, other forms of retribution and all, of, you know, and it's like, to me, that's legitimizing. It, it's like giving in to the terrorists. I would say even if there's not violence, let's just – I'll take it a step down, It's which it's your argument still holds. If, if what basically I think you're right that there's this asymmetry here and what Steve is essentially saying is the people who Trump fooled through disinformation to distrust – our institutions won't accept this. And so therefore, right, we should, you know, the court should go in that direction. And yeah, that's because they have been misinformed and and deceived and their trust in our institutions are undermined, but that doesn't mean that our institutions shouldn't follow the law. Right. And the other fallacy in his logic is, you know, he said, let the voters decide because then Um, It will be better to beat him at the ballot box because then, you know, that will be a more legitimate way of defeating him. Um, P.S. He was defeated at the ballot box in 2020. And guess what? There was an insurrection. That's why we're here. That's why we're here, people. Okay, that's why we're talking about Maine and the Supreme Court. So this idea that the same people who would not accept a decision by the Supreme Court to disqualify Trump based on the letter of the law would somehow magnanimously accept his loss uh, in, at the ballot box, I mean, to me, is just misguided and, and unrealistic. Yeah, and I think it, I'll tell you another broader, I would say broader point about it is it's very dangerous to suggest that you're not going to follow the law because it's unpopular or because it's going to have some consequence amongst, you know, the citizenry. So, you know, could you imagine the Supreme Court in 1954 deciding like, well, there's going to be a lot of people in the South are going to really hate this Brown versus Board of Education decision. Let's not desegregate the schools because they're God knows these people aren't going to accept it. And we don't know if the president's going to enforce it and whatever. Like, it's absurd. I, I mean, obviously, 
you know, the, the, the whole point of having a court is that they make decisions based on the law, even when those decisions are unpopular. And I will say... I was just going to pause on the Brown versus Board piece, which is, it's not that the... It's not that the court doesn't ever recognize how a decision will be received, right? Like there are people that they are people who make up the institution. They understand the political climate. With Brown versus Board, I think it was the understanding that this is, was going to be a huge decision that would be difficult for people to accept where um, it was important to have unanimity. And I forget the exact history of it, but I remember the Chief Justice making sure to position the case or hear it or decide it in such a way that he knew that the the final tally would be unanimous precisely because of how controversial it was going to be. And that's something, by the way, very much lost in the in the court nowadays. I mean, one thing that was fascinating, there's some really recent New York Times reporting, in-depth reporting behind the scenes of what was happening at the Supreme Court with the Dobbs decision that overturned mm. Roe versus Wade. And there was a lot of internal discussion where Breyer was telling the conservative justices, do you really want to do this now? Like, you don't need to do this in year one as soon as you get in. You can wait three, four, five years and not have this seem as reactionary to you getting in and immediately doing this. And the chief justice was also trying to make arguments about how the institution would be perceived and other things. And that was all ignored. So very interesting contrast. And, and, you know, one the point I was going to make, though, is I will say my inclination, and, and I'll give my, this is my tip of the cap to Steve, my inclination is generally for judges to be um, uh, humble about their role and when po- not to, to, to give as much breath as possible for political branches of government that are, polit- or I say political branches, democratically elected branches of government to make decisions because I think those decisions are more easily corrected. But that's a different argument than what Steve's saying. And it's not really that he thinks that there's some deference that needs to be given because this is not a call for the courts to make because it seems like it is. It's really that we have to put the the thumb on the scale for one side. And I I find that problem very, very problematic. Yeah. Um, Do you think... And I'm more just speculating at this point. But do you think that the court will try to find some legal off ramp or do you think that they will address the direct question and just say, as a as a matter of fact, this doesn't meet the criteria? They will absolutely find some off-ramp, in my opinion. And and what I had originally thought, and this is me being, I'm not an appellate lawyer. I'm not somebody who does a lot of Supreme Court works. I have done done a lot of appellate arguments in my life. I used to do a lot of that. I don't do that nowadays Um, very much. But my take was they were going to just say it's a political, quote-unquote, political question. But after listening to the discussion with Steve Vladek, and we, I, you know, we had had a separate, I think, offline conversation with the with the, another constitutional scholar. I, I think that maybe they'll go a different route to get there um, than the political question route. But that was my original thought. They're going to find some excuse to put this off to the side, basically say we don't know whether he committed insurrection or not. Like it's not self-executing or yeah. uh, it's doesn't apply to the present. By the way, like I think it's getting from from the research and analysis that I'm seeing, those kinds of arguments are going to be really hard to support with, given the history 
of the amendment. So I hear you. I agree with that. But one thing I just learned from decades of practicing law is that sometimes appellate courts write around or write over wallpaper over issues. The question is, does it write? That's a question. That's like a lawyer's question. And that's essentially, is it is the argument so absurd that you can't write a, an opinion like on sheet of paper that says that and holds together? And I, I think that whether something writes a, is a very low bar because they typically can slant the facts in some way or kind of sidestep issues that would would otherwise make um, – uh, you know, make a, make some make a decision come out differently, and I I think if a court doesn't want to decide an issue, if that's all they're trying to do, or they're trying to sort of sidestep something, they can find ways to do it. Usually, well, we'll see. So, uh, Asha, another interesting thing that happened. It was fascinating for me to see the reaction to it because there's so much, there was not only a lot of discussion online, but I was asked about this several times on MSNBC and CNN. I've talked about this quite a bit uh, was Jack Smith filed a motion um, essentially trying to bar the defense from making all sorts of irrelevant political arguments uh, about the motives of the prosecution, about the the fact that this was a political attack, that it was hatched by Biden, all sorts of things that are otherwise irrelevant that don't have anything to do with one way or the other, whether Donald Trump engaged in you know um, a, a scheme to defraud the United States or any of the other crimes for which he is charged. And this drew a lot, very sharp reactions from people saying, okay, this is um, you know, th- yes, this is crazy that he'd even consider that. We could talk about that, that Trump's team would even consider doing that. How could he do it? And also that this was like um, some, uh, you know, uh, you know, motion that is sort of um, unusual. And, and the fact is, it's actually, from my perspective, as a, somebody who practices criminal law, it's in a vein of motions that are are made in a lot of criminal cases. Okay. So we're basically talking about Trump's lawyers getting up in front of the jury and being like, ladies and gentlemen, this is a witch hunt by the Biden administration and like basically making that the theory of their case. And uh, they're out to get Trump and keep him off the ballot or try to derail his candidacy, like basically presenting that as the defense. Yeah. Or making arguments or asking questions. Because I'm just wondering, like, where else would that come in? Would it? In other words, like, I do feel like for them to bring a witness to somehow, like, testify that this is politically motivated, like, at that point, the judge could keep it out, right? Like, the judge would be like, that's not. Or are you saying that without this motion being ruled upon, they would be able to bring that in? Well, great question. I mean, certainly if there's some witness, you know, if if uh, whatever, you know, uh, you're going to have some some White House staffer is going to come in and say, actually, Joe Biden. Like Mike Flynn gets up on the stand. This is politically motivated. <laughs> well, no, not his opinion, but like somebody's like, I witnessed this, you know, uh, but uh, but in all seriousness, this is the, just uh, kind of to take a 10,000 foot view. Yes. Mm-hmm. First of all, this is really about statements and arguments and questions that, that attorneys would use. So. Uh, one factoid that I'm just going to mention to people, somebody who practices criminal law all the time and have been for decades, is it's often the case that the government, it's almost always the case that the government has the upper hand in a criminal prosecution and in a criminal trial. 
it's and it's even it's less it's less often, but usually the case that the government has such strong evidence that the defense cannot play it straight and win. And what I mean by playing it straight is by just like, well, we're going to sort of play by the marquees of Queensberry rules. And we're going to sort of just sort of follow the prosecution's playbook to its conclusion and get there. And so there's various tactics that the defense is going to use to shift the the um, the debate, to change the denominator for the jury, to try to distract the jury, to get the jury focused on something else. And so there are different methods that defense attorneys use to do it. Sometimes it's purely by making arguments um, that are – um, you know, at uh, let's say in closing argument or saying things in their opening that sort of kind of get uh, the jury focus on extraneous things. Sometimes it's about making statements or insinuations in the myth- middle of the trial. Sometimes it's about, a, 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 particularly if the judge tries to clamp down on what I just, the, the various methods I just mentioned, it might be asking questions. You know, it, you could even ask a witness like, well, did Joe Biden put you up to this? Has anyone from the Biden administration got, you know, there, those are questions. There's nothing invalid about the question on cross. The person can deny it, but the, the idea gets out there, right? And all that happens at almost every criminal trial that the defense is like, okay, we need to come up. We have some other theory and all sorts of crazy stuff we're trying to introduce. The government's like, no, no, no. And then there's usually a fight pretrial about trying to constrain certain topics or certain avenues. The defense usually comes up with other ones that the prosecution didn't think to include in their motion. And then the judge in real time has to try to clamp down on what the defense is doing. And it's often much harder than it sounds for the judge to do that in front of the jury. So what do you think is going to happen in this case? I think it's going to be an absolute circus. (laughs) And I think I I don't care what the judge decides to this motion. They're going to find ways to introduce all sorts of nonsense in front of the jury And Jack Smith and his team have to be ready for it. And really what they're doing here is just placing a marker down. They're mentioning to the judge, we're concerned about this. We think this is going to happen. And we want to have a ruling out there by you that we can point to in the middle of trial. So because they have to be very careful how they say this in front of the jury to not create an appellate issue. Because the defense can appeal the guilty verdict. The the, the government can't appeal the not guilty. So the the judge is going to be very careful about preserving making things very fair for the defendant in the midst of a trial. So they want to be able to say, judge, this violates your prior ruling without explaining what it's about or something like that to try to rein them in in the midst of the trial. The defense is going to do what they're going to do anyway. They're going to just thumb their nose at the judge, which is what nine nine out of 10 defense lawyers would do. But it's going to be a battle. And if this was televised, which I know a lot of we've talked about that before, it would be an insane circus. It'll still be a circus even if it isn't. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, you, I guess to your point, if they ask like the crazy question, like, did Joe Biden put you up to this, even if the prosecution objects, um, it's there and they keep they can keep planting that little nugget throughout. Exactly. And and then if they say something in their closing arguments is that are the if the prosecutors are constantly jumping up all during their closing mm-hmm. arguments, then they'll be like, you see, they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want you to hear yeah. the truth, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. They don't want you to hear the truth. They're shutting us down. It, it, it's a tough balance. As I've been in both sides of it. I was a federal prosecutor for almost a decade. I've been on that side of it, trying to shut down the defense uh, when they were trying to bring up a lot of irrelevant crap. And I've been on the defense side and I've been fighting. It's, it's, it's a challenge and it's a battle that is, that is waged you know, in, in criminal cases all the time. Well, it will be interesting. I will say – 
Jack Smith seems pretty aggressive. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I it, it does sound like if there's anyone that is up to the task of dealing with Trump's shenanigans in court, it's him. I agree. Although it'll be interesting. I don't know if he's going to be on the trial team. It'll be interesting to see what his team does. They're going to have really game plan how to deal with this stuff. But it is very much an in the moment thing. It's like a knife fight. You can't you can't stop to think about it like things are happening and you have to react. It, I think the mm-hmm. real question is how does Judge Chutkin act? Does yeah. she do and, – and this could create an appellate issue. So she's going to really – I think part of the reason they're doing this is to preview this for her and get her thinking about it and ha- mm-hmm. allow her to kind of create a record for herself where she's warning the defense about certain things. Because as she reacts in the yeah. moment, she could issue a ruling that could potentially create issues on appeal. Yeah. So it's in her interest also to kind of set some parameters ahead of as time. much as possible. Yes. Yeah. But it'll be tough because no matter what parameters she sets, it's in the defense's interest to push those boundaries. So, Renato, before we go, happy new year. Happy new year to you. I hope you had a good one. Thank you. I did. Um so should we talk about our New Year's goals? Absolutely. You know, one thing, by the way, I was talking to somebody about this recently. I don't know about you, but I have been, I am like a huge person in terms of personal growth and change. Like that's been a huge mm-hmm. thing for me for decades. So I'm somebody mm-hmm. like always trying to think of like what I can do better, how I can improve. I really think you can. I've changed a lot over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. I'm a self-help junkie. I think we talked about this in class. Like I read a lot of books and I do, you know, a lot of self-improvement kind of things, whether it's improving my habits or whatever. I will say that one habit that I have gotten into maybe over the last decade is rather than creating new year's resolutions, I make a list of all my accomplishments from the previous year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I could, you know, it's really useful to kind of inventory things that I'm happy about. And I mean, and it can be big or small, right? Like not just professionally, but um, things that brought me satisfaction, things that um, I'm grateful for or, or whatever. Um, And I think that's been a really helpful practice in terms of orienting me into the new year. That's awesome. I, I like to spend the, the, this time of year, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the year to come. This is always, if you're a practicing lawyer, December, like late December, early January is the like super slow. And this is the time I actually usually take a vacation around this time. I've done that the last couple of years. But also I, I spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time like talking to my wife over the last you know week or two and particularly when I'm on vacation. I'm actually having various lunches and coffees with friends and, and stuff. And I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about what I want different. One thing that I will say that being at a, at a wellness resort really reminded me of is the need to focus on breathing. You know, one thing that I had really learned was the importance of like doing breath work to sort of when you're in stress to get your mind out of that space. And mm-hmm. I didn't do that this year, even though I had an incredibly stressful year where I was spending so many, that 3,000 plus hours working, I did not um, do that. 
And so now um, I'm going to really, I'm really trying to find time to do that uh, this year, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important and self-care and balance and all of that. And I mean, it's so hard when you're working at a law firm too. I mean, I'm not going to like academia is kind of like, it's, it's pretty good for balance. It's, it's awesome. And, and that was my break. original career I mean, path, by the way, that I really wanted. Cause I thought it was an awesome life and it is, but I, you know, for me, it was like, as my practice grew, when it, my practice was more, was more modest, so it was not a big deal. But as it's grown that balance, and that's a big part of it. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with my wife this year about maintaining a balance and doing radically different things if I have to in my job. This is coming from me more than from her, but for, I just, for me, it's really important to have that balance because I, there's a reason I wasn't tweeting as much this year or writing columns or doing, you know, stuff, you know, that I would ordinarily do um, because I wasn't, didn't have that balance. I think that's just so important that you don't lose what you really love in life. Cause it's all really about creating a life that you're happy with, not about, whatever getting imaginary points or money or something like that yeah i think of it as reminding myself of what feeds my soul mm -hmm. and making sure that i'm like taking time to do that like for me it's like going to the theater and you know reading um i'm still struggling with that one and it's hard for me it's like hard at this time of the year because although academia is great it is um it's cyclical and there are just heavy times and low times. And for me, the January time period is pretty busy because mm -hmm. in addition to my teaching, I do administrative duties, including admissions. So oh. now I'm like, you know, reading admissions files. And that's like, you know, it's actually, you know, a lot of reading. It gets dark at 430 outside. It's like pitch black and Usually I, I just want to fling myself out a window and I'm like just waiting for March when we can turn the clocks again. Wow. My my regroup time to reassess is the summertime. That's super interesting. Yeah, that's usually a heavy time for mm -hmm. me. But one thing that I am definitely trying to get better about, and I I actually got like a new ta a new like eating tablet to try to work on this is like the administrative duties that I have and being better about staying on top of the little things that I don't enjoy doing. So that they don't pile up mm -hmm. and that I don't get too behind on that sort of stuff. Because I do think that's one of the challenging things. Like I think the for both of us, probably the 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 stuff that's the most fun in our jobs is like that's great, but it's all the administrative stuff that you have to do that isn't as much fun, right? Yeah. And we've talked about how that 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 administrative stuff is just not the stuff that you like to do and are not good at. I, I don't mind that stuff. It's like mindless, but it's like detailed and, you know, I can kind of get into it. That is, yeah. That is not me. I think as you get older, you you understand in your strengths more. And mm -hmm. definitely that is my weakness. So I have all these helpers who help me with a lot of this administrative stuff, but still there's things that I, I'm a bottleneck for. So I'm working on that in the year ahead. Yeah, that's the nice thing about getting older. You can delegate. <laughs> Indeed throw money at it you know what i mean and, and get it done 100 m s w media